The following message was recorded at Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information can be found online at Bethlehem.Church. We just heard Daniel pray. And he prays to what kind of a God? In the prayer we just heard, Daniel describes God in 14, at least 14, amazing ways. And if you were going to praise God for 14 things, what would they be? Well, today I want us to see what is impossible with man is possible with God. And I want us to see 14 vital things about God. Why should we see 14 things? Answer, because Daniel sees 14 things at least and spells them out to us. And therefore, we too should see them. As you may have observed, Pastor Stephen has invited to this pulpit a multiplicity of elders to preach from time to time. And one benefit of hearing from a stable of preachers instead of just one preacher is that it helps the church to see that the authority of the preached word doesn't come from this preacher or that preacher, but from the Scripture. Last week, Pastor Stephen showed us from chapter 1 of Daniel that like Daniel, we are not living in the Garden of Eden anymore, nor are we home yet, but we, like Daniel, are in exile. And Pastor Stephen's main point last week was this. God is still sovereign, and He sustains and upholds His people to live faithfully in the world, even as exiles. Despite how dire, disastrous, and depressing I love Stephen's onomatopoeia there, all the D's. Dire, disastrous, or depressing the circumstances, God is still sovereign. And last week we observed, it is God who gave Jehoiakim into the hand of the Babylonians. It is God who gave Daniel favor in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. It is God who gave Daniel and his three companions learning and skill in all literature and wisdom. It is God who gave Daniel understanding in all visions and dreams. So the main character of this book isn't Daniel, it's God. And we come now to chapter 2. Having taken Israel into captivity, Nebuchadnezzar has troubled God's chosen people And now God troubles Nebuchadnezzar in a dream. Even if Nebuchadnezzar has troops guarding him day and night, God can reach him. God is in Nebuchadnezzar's bed. God is in Nebuchadnezzar's head. And even if the king didn't know the exact meaning of the dream, he knew it was something ominous. So Nebuchadnezzar asked himself, who could help me understand these dreams? Well, I have a whole staff of enchanters and magicians and sorcerers and Chaldeans. This seems like something that would be in their job description, would be in their department. These these Chaldeans are kind of like his cabinet, like our president has, his inner circle of advisors. They're not merely some lowly traffic cops or neighborhood dog catchers, but his top aides and his advisors, his consultants. These are some of Babylon's movers and shakers. Aaron Rothermel One of the pastors here points out that because we see various kinds of advisors, magicians, enchanters, sorcerers, Chaldeans, that they may have exercised specialties within their field. 
These were so-called experts, not merely counter, county fair palm readers or vendors of some kind. And you may recall that when Moses approached Pharaoh, Pharaoh had magicians also who tried to match wits with Moses. When Aaron threw down his staff and it turned into a snake, I'm speaking of Moses' brother Aaron, not Aaron Rothermel, The Egyptian wise men and the sorcerers, magicians, they did the same thing. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staff, their snakes. Just as God confounded Pharaoh's wise men, God is confounding Nebuchadnezzar's wise men in this chapter. But wait, Nebuchadnezzar says to himself, I sometimes wonder if these guys are hucksters who have some kind of a scam going. I pay them good money. But is there a way to test their interpretations? Nebuchadnezzar rightfully distrusts the enchanters of his realm. In fact, you might say he distrusts his culture's way of doing things. And we should beware too. Nebuchadnezzar is inclined to think that the meaning of his dream and the significance of his dream is too important and too ominous to just guess about. Like banking your future on fortune cookies. Now I brought with me, I brought with me some actual fortune cookie fortunes that I've collected. And I I just brought a couple of them here, if I can get them out of the envelope. These are actual fortune cookie fortunes. The fortune you seek is in another cookie. (laughs) Ignore previous cookie. (laughs) Nebuchadnezzar wonders, these guys really know what they're doing? Really? A lot of so-called experts in our day had Green Bay in the Super Bowl this year. They'll be there sitting in the bleachers. As with fortune cookies, astrology charts, and football prognostications, Nebuchadnezzar suspects something might be rotten in Denmark. So he challenges his wise men not only to put an interpretation on the dream, but to reveal the dream. To know his mind. And the enchanters balk once in verse 4. In verse 6, the king offers a carrot and a stick. The carrot, he offers great reward and great honor. Or the stick, great punishment. Torn limb from limb. And your houses laid in ruins. So the enchanters balk a second time. The king apparently wonders if the fraternity of enchanters are imposters on his payroll. So he accuses them of stalling, takes away the carrot, and leaves only the stick. The enchanters balk a third time in verses 10 and 11, and now the king is really ticked. He's had it, and he orders their execution en masse, all of them. Here, Nebuchadnezzar follows the 
pattern of Egypt's Pharaoh who desires to be in control. So he kills all the baby boys, though we know Moses escapes in a mere basket. And Nebuchadnezzar is a precursor of Herod, who is yet to come, who desires to be in control. So Herod kills all the baby boys. In fact, Nebuchadnezzar's insecure desire to be in control is cut from the same fabric as all dictators down through history. He wants what he wants, when he wants it, or somebody will pay with their life. He, Nebuchadnezzar, is us. Let us not consider ourselves better than he. For example, in our day, through abortion, we out-Herod Herod, killing those who are inconvenient to our plans and our preferences. And whether we're aware of it or not, we have the same assumption as Friedrich Nietzsche, who famously said, quote, There cannot be a God because if there were one, I could not believe that I was not he. It's not just abortionists and Nietzsche who deserve judgment. For Jesus relates our anger with murder. Listen to Jesus in Matthew 5. You've heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder... And whoever murders will be liable of judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Judgment. My anger and yours is serious business. But I have good news for you. We'll see in a few minutes that God is the God of Daniel's father's. And who is that God? Jehovah. And what is Jehovah like? Listen to Deuteronomy 4.31. For the Lord your God is a merciful God. He will not leave you or destroy you or forget the covenant with your fathers that he swore to them. And what covenant was that? Jeremiah 32.40. I will make with them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them. And I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. He will put the fear of himself in us so that we will slay the expectations and the spirit of entitlement that give rise to our ungodly anger. Let's not be like Nebuchadnezzar in anger. Meanwhile, poor Nebuchadnezzar not only is discovering that he cannot control history, can't even govern his own thought life, his own dream life. And so he threatens like the big bad wolf in the story of the three little pigs. I'll huff and I'll puff and I'll blow your house down, he says to his wise men. By the end of chapter 4, we're going to hear echoes of Humpty Dumpty. Nebuchadnezzar sat on a wall. Nebuchadnezzar had a great fall. And all the king's horses and all the king's men and all the king's enchanters and sorcerers and Chaldeans cannot put the king back together again. God is sovereign over Nebuchadnezzar's sanity. Here in chapter 2, all the king's men can't even put together his dream. The enchanters claim 
No one can show it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh, and they are partly right. Knowing a secret dream is a matter of divine ability. I can guess what you're thinking, but I don't know what you're thinking. God's dwelling is with the flesh, as we shall see. The question is, who can know the private thoughts of another person? If we jump ahead to the New Testament, we see that Jesus does. He knows. Luke seven thirty six. Let me just read you part of this episode. One of the Pharisees asked Jesus to eat with him. And he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. And behold... A woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flax of ointment, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears, and wiped them with the hair of her head, and kissed his feet, and anointed them with ointment. And now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, all of you are saying something to yourself right now. And what if others in the room knew what it was? Well, God knows it. This Pharisee thinks, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him. For she's a sinner. Tisk, tisk. And Jesus, answering, answering his private thoughts, said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. Simon answered, Say it, teacher. Now, Jesus makes his intentions known. I have something to say to you. You were thinking your thoughts and you wouldn't say them to us. You just said them to yourself. I'm not going to read the rest of the story. Uh, It's a great story of how the one who is forgiven much loves much. My only point here is that Jesus knows the thoughts of Simon. Now, somebody might say, well, he said it to himself, but he said it out loud, and Jesus was eavesdropping. So let me go to a different episode in Mark chapter 2, verse 3. And they came bringing to Jesus a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now... Some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts. Why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, he said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Nebuchadnezzar's wise men are right. No man can know a secret dream, only the gods, except they should take the S off gods and capitalize the G. Jesus knows the secret thoughts of others, of me, of you. Now, dear Bethlehem, Jesus is God. He's worthy of our worship. So Nebuchadnezzar is right to suspect that his enchanters don't know his dream, his inner thought life. And the wise men are right to say that only divinity can know the thoughts of another. And Jesus is right to be the divinity that knows the secret thoughts of others. 
couple weeks ago, you might recall Pastor Stephen preached from Psalm 139, which points us to the Lord, who is Jesus. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You know my thoughts from afar. You know when I'm walking in the way, when I lie down, before there's a word on my tongue. Behold, O Lord, you know it all together. Get the word before there. You hem me in, behind and before, and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It's high. I cannot attain unto it. All right. Knowledge of Nebuchadnezzar's dream is high, and the enchanters cannot attain it. But what is impossible with man is possible with God. Now, before we've finished our sermon series on the book of Daniel, Nebuchadnezzar will incrementally discover that God is God. He's sovereign over dreams. That's next week's sermon. Over fiery furnaces in chapter 3. He's sovereign over his own sanity, chapter 4. And as his successor, King Darius, will discover he's sovereign over lion's dens. But we get ahead of ourselves. Here, in this first half of chapter 2, we see that the sovereignty of God extends to the secret dream life of a pagan king. The good news is that God fastens his sovereignty onto his promise to work all things, all things, together for the good of those who love him that they would be conformed to the image of Jesus. So, I can ask myself, why did Nebuchadnezzar have this particular dream? And I'll give you one answer. If God is working all things together for the good of those who love him, that they might be conformed to the image of his son, then Nebuchadnezzar had that dream so that Sam Crabtree would be conformed to the image of Jesus one day. Do you see it? His dream is part of the all things that God works together for the good of those who love him. Now, Nebuchadnezzar, we admit, couldn't have known that at the time. He didn't know there was such a thing as a crab tree. And there are a great number of things that we don't know at the time that the events of our lives are taking place. But God is working them all together for the good of everyone who loves him. He's in control, his ways are wise. And his purposes are glorious. And though threats like Nebuchadnezzar's, threats to tear them limb from limb and to demolish their houses, can achieve hasty responses, which they did, they don't foster long-term loyalty in the ranks. However, out of reverence for God, Daniel remains respectful of the king's God-given position. And let me suggest here that Daniel doesn't go to the king because he trusts the king with anything. He goes to the king because he trusts God with everything. And as is his pattern, God honors the reverence and obedience of faith. Now observe. Daniel intercedes for the other magicians before they ask him to do so. Before they're aware that he's even doing so. And before they're wise enough to know that they could be saved through this intercessor on their behalf. He intercedes for them before they can show any appreciation whatsoever for his intercession. And as I was pondering this text, it occurred to me 
that I'm not saved by my ability to interpret dreams or pray 14 vital things about God or preach at Bethlehem Baptist Church or do anything. I'm saved by another. I'm saved by Jesus Christ. It is what He does that saves me. He takes action before I ask Him to. Before I'm even aware that He's working on my behalf. His crucifixion satisfies the justice of the King of Kings. So we see here in the text that Daniel proceeds and he speaks with wisdom and with tact. But before Daniel goes to the king with the dream's interpretation, he prays. God welcomes extemporaneous praying. There's also great value in written prayers, otherwise they wouldn't be included in the Bible. I brought a copy of Herbert Lockyer's book, All the Prayers in the Bible. He's written 350 of the Bible's prayers in here and then made comments about all of them. The Bible is full of many prayers. Written prayers are very helpful. They help me. I think they would help others who read them. But extemporaneous praying is also valuable. And extemporaneous prayers that eventually get written down are helpful to us. And here's one that's included in the Bible. God's sovereign purposes here are worked out through our God-given impulses to pray because God is God over ends and means. He wants to bring about certain things through Daniel's life and in Daniel's life, and he wants to bring about some of those things through Daniel's praying for those things. The same goes for you. There are certain things he wants to bring about in your life, and he will bring them about, but he wants to bring them about through your praying. So he ordains the ends and he ordains the means to those ends in your praying. Now, since God is the main character of the book of Daniel, what does Daniel's prayer reveal to us about God? Here are the 14 things. I'll race through them. Number one, verse 20. He's blessed. God is blessed. It can mean that he's praised, which is true. It can mean that he's happy, which is also true. It was Henry Skugel who, a long time ago, alertly wrote, the worth and excellency of a soul, any soul, your soul, my soul, God's soul, the worth and excellency of a soul is to be measured by the object of its love. In other words, you can tell something about a soul by what it loves. Does it love something that's beautiful and worthy and precious? Or does it love something that's very pedestrian and common and temporal? The most excellent souls love the most excellent things. The most excellent things make them happy. God is most pleased by that which is most excellent, which is himself. Which is why Paul could tell Timothy to live, quote, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God, the happy God. Number two, Daniel praises God for being everlasting. Here, Isaiah 41, 13. Blessed, there's that word again, blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. He had no predecessor. He'll have no successor. He's the only underived and unfading being in existence. With God, there's no before or after. He precedes everything else. And he will still be on his throne when Nebuchadnezzar no longer is. Third, wisdom is his. Off the charts 
wisdom. Never duped, never fooled, never irrational. Thoroughly acute judgment. Perfectly understanding cause and effect relationships and uprightly discerning between good and evil according to his own innate perfections. In chapter 1 last week, we traced God's sovereignty. Here, in chapter 2, we trace his superior wisdom. There it is in verse 20. By the end of the Bible, we will see that all the treasures of wisdom are hidden in Christ. Colossians 2. Christ in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And footnote, when Jesus is born, wise men come from afar to worship him. These are likely the same kind of wise men that Nebuchadnezzar has. Number four, fourth observation about God. Might is his. He's not only unstoppable, invincible, and uncontainable, but everything and every one that has any power whatsoever receive that power from him. The sun, the atomic particle, the wind, the energizer buddy, bunny, all got their power from him. His power reigns over kings. Daniel knows God said the following to Moses in Exodus chapter 3, quote, But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So, says God, I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. And after that, he will let you go. The might of God is revealed a few verses earlier in that same chapter, Exodus 3, when Moses asks by what name he should call God, and God answers, I am who I am. I was looking into that name a little bit, and I found that it can be written seven more ways. Here are the seven. I am what I am. I will be what I will be. I am because I am. I will be because I will be. I cause to be what I cause to be. I am present is what I am. I am the one who is. The raw power of sheer existence is His. He's almighty. Second Chronicles 20. O Lord, God of our fathers, are you not God in heaven? You rule over all the kingdoms of the nations. In your hand are power and might so that none is able to withstand you. We'll see more of that power when we get to chapter 4 in Daniel. Number 5, from verse 21, he changes times and seasons. From the very first week of creation, God said, Let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night, and let them be for signs and for seasons. He changes the seasons. Changes the seasons of nature, and he changes the seasons of governments of man, which leads to number 6. He removes kings. This will become apparent in next week's message from the second half of chapter 2 of Daniel. But already Daniel knows how Egypt was plundered by the Israelites. Pharaoh's army was drowned in the Red Sea. Daniel knows about arrivals and removals of kings. David, Solomon, Rehoboam, the whole list of kings in the Old Testament scriptures, and every other king up to his present day. Number seven, 
God not only removes kings, he sets up kings. Not some kings, all kings. Do you know of a king? God made him king. He reigns only as long as God says so. He set up Jehoiakim at the beginning of chapter 1. Took Jehoiakim into captivity. Number 8. The God to whom Daniel prays provides wisdom. Now, we saw in number 3, wisdom. He's a wise God. Here we see he dispenses it. He gives it out to others. Number 9. He provides knowledge. Psalm 94. He who planted the ear, does he not hear? He who formed the eye, does he not see? He who disciplines the nations, does he not rebuke? He who teaches man knowledge, the Lord, knows the thoughts of man. Number 10. He reveals hidden things. Nothing is hidden from him. I think in this prayer, Daniel is both praising God for these um, capacities and he's thanking God for what God just did because God just revealed Nebuchadnezzar's dream to Daniel. Number 11, he can reveal hidden things because he knows what is in the darkness, both figurative darkness and literal darkness. Psalm 139 that Pastor Stephen preached on a few weeks ago says, If I say, surely the darkness will cover me. And the light about me will be night. Well, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is as bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. Number 12, light dwells with him. 1 Timothy 6, God, who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. Now, I've cited here the New Testament, and Daniel didn't have that. So how did he know that light dwells with God? Well, he could have known it from the creation story. He could have known it from the account of Moses coming down from the mountain, his face shining, having met with God. He could have known it because the Spirit of God was breathing Scripture through him. In any case, Daniel knew it and prayed it and wrote it. Thirteen, who is this God? He's the God of Daniel's fathers. Did you hear the orchestra's opening number in this service? God of our fathers. It's not some random new thing that we're inventing or that Daniel invented. He's connected to history. Daniel didn't and couldn't invent this God. This isn't a new God. It's the same God who's been involved ever since the beginning. Daniel's God is the same God as the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Elijah and the prophets. And Daniel shows here that he's familiar with the scriptures that describe that God. Number 14, he gives when asked. Specifically, he gave Daniel the king's dream and its interpretation. Psalm 2, ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. Now when I review Daniel's prayer and I ask myself, okay, I read that prayer, did I meet God in that prayer? I think, yeah, at least 14 ways. And having looked at Daniel's prayer, I ask myself, 
Do I pray like Daniel? Do you? Daniel was a young man, young man, who wrote a God-centered prayer. In this past week, I wondered if there might be young people among us who might write a poem about Jesus. And I wondered if someday a poem by one of these young people might be put to music. There are musicians among us. And I wondered if someday our children's choirs might sing it. Or we all might sing it. And singing it, we would marvel at who Jesus is. Wonderful if it, I wonder if it might please the Lord for something like that to happen. Just wondering. Next week, we'll look at the dream, the second half of chapter 2. Daniel's God-given interpretation of the dream and Nebuchadnezzar's remarkable response to the interpretation that Daniel offers at risk of death. Thank you for listening to this message from Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Bethlehem Baptist Church. For more information, we invite you to visit us online at Bethlehem.Church or write us at 720-13th Avenue South, Minneapolis, Minnesota, 55415. Bethlehem Baptist Church, spreading a passion for the supremacy of God in all things, for the joy of all peoples, through Jesus Christ.